you know, everyone around here calls it the best, one of the best contracts in, in baseball and maybe baseball history, you know, and you get seven years of Max Scherzer and see what he's done for you across that span, including a World Series. But he doesn't believe that earning the next step, earning a, whether it's an extension with the Nationals, a new deal, um, the next team on a short term, probably high AAV contract, I can, if I can imagine it, is not going to be worked out, you know, screaming across the table. It's going to be worked out if he can just dominate them. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the best podcast in baseball brought to you by Closets by Design of St. Louis. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould, joined this week by Washington Nationals beat writer for the Washington Post and author Jesse Doherty. Jesse, thank you so much for joining me. You're here in St. Louis, but we are, of course, at a distance, so you're somewhere else in somewhere elsewhere in St. Louis, I guess, but uh, on the road traveling and also Seeing the Nationals together as a team for the first time, is that a good way to describe what happened in the first part of the series? <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely one way. Uh, so they, you know, after a, after a mini COVID outbreak, I, you know, I don't really know what the threshold is for the word outbreak, but we've been using it. Um, they are whole or just about whole. So uh, it was it was my first chance to be in this Cardinals National Series to actually see what this group looks like, the one they built in the winter. Uh, it, it took until April 12th, but uh, we, we finally we finally got there. What was your first impression of the team together? Yeah, I mean, I think so. The, so the idea was all winter was to improve the lineup. And to do that, they had to add some power in the middle of the order because last year what happened was by September, teams had just basically said, we're not going to throw Juan Soto a pitch in the strike zone. So at that time, behind him in the order was – a mix of Estrubal Cabrera, a mix of Eric Thames, uh, Howie Kendrick a bit, though he was out with injury. And if you can put yourself in a manager's chair, which is a dangerous thing to do, obviously, you could say, well, if those guys are behind Juan Soto, then of course I'm going to just throw him ball after ball after ball and, and live with the consequences. So what the Nationals did is they went out and got Josh Bell in a trade. They signed Kyle Schwarber after he was non-tender by the Cubs. And uh, the early returns were good. Um, Josh Bell walks twice, uh, hits a single – Kyle Schwarber comes up in a big spot in a tie game and hits a go-ahead double. Um, that's kind of what you want. And, you know, the trap we can fall into is, you know, just because the first week in change was without those guys doesn't mean they're going to deliver in every spot they come up in, right? This is still an incredibly hard thing to do. But uh, the fact that they did that in their first night in their debut after basically spending the last week or so, you know, in, with virtual reality goggles or hitting off a football machine, um, I think it was a, a good lift for the fan base. I think those first six games would be hard to watch. But uh, – it's going to still be an interesting process because those are, those are high strikeout guys. They, they're prone to slump. So I'm interested to see how it actually looks over the course of, you know, a month, two months, not just this one day sample size, but the one day was pretty good. They may not be able to, um, you know, convince teams to, to void Soto. They just might have to capitalize on when teams do. For sure. Right. That, that's kind of the idea. For it's, sure. Yeah. Yeah. How similar to that is then when you see the Cardinals who you saw a lot all spring, I mean, are they just inviting teams to pitch around Arenado and Goldschmidt because there really isn't that much back. I mean, you saw that somewhat in the first game uh, of the, of the series, though Arenado struck out three times, but you, you do see teams are, or we're likely to see teams avoid them because there isn't that threat in the middle of the order yet. Yeah. I mean, I think the lineups are built fairly similarly in that they're largely uh, around the two, three hitters being elite and the, you know, one and then five through eight being, or four through eight rather, being much bigger question marks, right? So it's kind of incumbent on 
you know, is it Paul DeYoung? Is it Yachty? Um, those guys sort of picking up the slack. You know, last night, I actually think the, the best development, so to speak, for the Nats, and again, these are mini sample sizes, was actually the way Starling Castro looked in the six hole. Mm. Because I, I, you know, just thinking about, you know, not just Juan Soto, but Josh Bell walks a good amount. Kyle Schwarber walks a lot. I, I think Starling Castro is going to come up this season with runners in scoring position at like an exorbitant rate, right? Like, and to see him, you know, go after an early count fastball, to get a sacrifice fly, to extend that you know, sort of deciding rally in the sixth. Um, later, he pokes an RBI single when the guys ahead of him get on to start the eighth. Uh, I, I think he actually is in a really big RBI spot. So it's not necessarily just protection for the three hole and the four hole. It's 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 having people later in the lineup who can sort of clean up the whole deal, right? And it's like, um, I don't know who that exactly is for the Cardinals. And that sounds like it might be a question mark. It's not necessarily right. the guy right behind there, not or Goldschmidt, but the guys behind that guy. Uh, basically, they're going to catch the biggest sort of onus in terms of actually driving in runs, at least the, the way the Nationals lineup is constructed. They've put together a pretty good two through five. But outside of that, it's definitely, you know, it, it could go either way. I'm curious, this might be just a trivia question, but did, did the Nationals build their team thinking that there would be a DH when they bring back Zimmerman and trade for Josh Bell? So, no, they didn't. I think... Okay. They wouldn't have minded one, especially with how Ryan Zimmerman hit this this spring and early part of this season. He was going to come back no matter what, basically. And I think the idea was to either pair him. They've they've really paired him with either one or two first basemen over the last three years. And sometimes they have you know three guys in the mix that kind of cycle and can play other positions. The the Josh Bell, Kyle Schwarber, Ryan Zimmerman. I mean, you're looking at like three guys right there who probably should be DHs. You know, it's just like, it's just the nature of it. But I think, you know, for the Nationals, so much of their payroll is tied up in their rotation. They spend around $90 million a year just to put out, uh, you know, the four guys being Scherzer, Strasburg, Corbin, and now John Lester. That, like, I think the idea, like, I, I asked someone in the front office, you know, so you get Kyle Schwarber, right, and you give up defense. Like, you give up or you get Josh Bell and you give up defense, but you, you, you get a middle of the order bat that you want, you get on, on base percentage, whatever it may be, but you're giving up something. And they said, well, yeah, I mean, the guys that you don't give up anything for are really expensive. Like, you know, that's just how it is, right? Like right. Either, you either develop them or you pay high premium. You like it's George Springer or it's uh, you know, it's even maybe Michael Brantley, you could say is not a great defensive outfitter, but he maybe is better for Schwarber. So I think it's more understanding that, you're probably not in a position to spend the money necessary to get that overall package and then trying to check the boxes of the holes you do have while sort of living with the consequences of that, which may be, you know, a handful of botch plays at first base this year. It falls in the gap that Kyle Schroeder can't get to. Getting those all-around guys, uh, they, they weren't going to go the other way. They weren't going to get the top defensive guy in, at the risk of not actually addressing their middle-of-the-order bats problem. That was the first thing they had to do, and then they were going to just kind of take whatever – collateral comes from there it's a really interesting bet to kind of marginalize defense that much to say that well, yeah. we're going to spend 90 million dollars on pitching but then we're going to make them throw extra pitches right like hey well, that's part of making this kind of money you're so good the extra pitches shouldn't be that bad right you. i mean i think that's a very fascinating way to go like to 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 not swaddle the thing that you spend the most money on with the best defense around so that you just absolutely, you know, suffocate teams. I don't know. We'll see if it works, but I mean, I, I do think that it's like, it's like, are you, are you also minimizing the greatest strength that you paid for? Totally. 
I mean, I felt that recently with their bullpen as well. Like, you're going to spend $90 million between the first inning and sixth inning, sometimes seventh, but then wait and see for the eighth and ninth. Like, are you actually sort of cashing in on that the money you're spending on the first or seventh if every time the eighth inning comes around, leads crumble? I don't know. And, and also, like, what's sort of the what's the consequences of spending so much on your rotation are that maybe you have to just wait and see and rebuild your bullpen every July. Now, this year they did that differently. They go out and get Brad Hand, and they have Will Harris, who's coming back to the injured list. But I've, I've often thought, and this, it's a really interesting query of, like, if you're going to invest in that rotation, uh, does it mean it makes up for those deficiencies? Or does it mean having those deficiencies makes the investment, you know, it, I guess, not you know, right. Like, I don't know. It's like, it's, it's interesting. Cause it probably, it's, there's some gray, right. Somewhere the answer somewhere in there, but I mean, you cover a team that is not investing $26 million a year in its third starter. Right. So I'm, right. I imagine there's, I imagine there's a higher premium or placed on the defensive side. Right. Because generally those guys are going to give up more contact or I don't know Have you found that. So they really fancy themselves as, developing pitchers so they think like their right. third starter if all things being equal their third starter would be miles michaelis and yeah i mean he'd be a guy who they could turn on you know turn two for quality starts right just that six innings just go out there and if he gives right. him more like he was bound for the all-star game there in dc a couple of years ago you know if he gives him more then that's great but they want you know and, and they could argue their way into believing that he should be their number two starter right behind flaherty they could do that but you know they 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 just want to play a run prevention style of baseball. And I, I don't think it has to do with the fact that they're not uh, investing in the pitching. I think it's just kind of the overall style of play that they want and also how they develop pitchers. I mean, you look at like how, uh, you know, you, you look at how say Zach Gallen or Sandy Alcantara, these or Marco Gonzalez, these pitchers who have gone, up through the Cardinal system or been identified by the Cardinals and drafted by the Cardinals and then part of trades and are now out there or, you know, Luke Weaver the other day, look at how they pitch. I mean, there is a style that they, you know, or a philosophy that they bring to the mound as well as their talent. And the Cardinals feel that part of that development or the best way to maximize that once they get to the major league level and then give them the consistency they need to start providing the quality starts is to give them a defense behind it. That, uh, yeah. that makes the plays, um, you know, left unsaid too, is they have really struggled to develop hitters. So it is it is it a strength by choice or is it a strength by necessity? It's probably more of the latter. Yeah, that's interesting. And yeah, I'm going to I'm going to struggle to find hitters. Right. Like they would, you know, that that and they've really struggled to acquire hitters and then have them produce as expected as Marcelo Zuna is an example of that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's dangerous for me to ever quote stats because they don't live in my head like some other people, but the Nationals three frontline starters are in some top 15, top 10 in the league in whiff rate over the last, you know, however many years. So I think that's also a part of it too, right? Like right. if we had every five days, the guys we throw out there are not even giving up that much contact. Well, okay, maybe we can live with a left fielder who doesn't get to every ball. Now it's not an exact science, but I think that probably is part of the calculation. That's a, that's a good example. That takes me back to the world of when the Cardinals acquired David Eckstein and there was a lot of questions about his defense. And I did this like really deep dive that would be so much easier to do today with like fan graphs <laughs> and stuff. But I pulled up all the stats and I had this yellow legal pad and I went through and did the difference between a strike ball, strikeout fly ball team 
and a ground ball team and what that meant for, you know, how, how busy a shortstop was, right? Like everyone's mm-hmm. like, well, look at, you know, how few assists or look at how few plays he has or look at his fielding percentage, which is just an awful stat. Right. And it was like, yeah, but there's more going on here because he played for the Angels, which was a strikeout fly ball team. So the, the shortstop wasn't that busy. Now he's going to a ground ball team and he's going to be super busy. And you'll probably understand that like those routine plays will add up, will add up. His positioning will add up, will add up. And maybe you won't notice that much of a difference. It's it's actually the same kind of thing when I look at like, not to get off the rails, but Omar Vizquel's home, uh, Hall of Fame, you know, a, a resume. Like how does how does he compare to other shortstop? Well, part of it is. You know, he was able to play on a team for so long while not contributing offensively because of all the Hall of Famers around him who were bonkers offensively. And then also, like, he, you know, we have memories of his great plays, but he doesn't crack the top, you know, 10 too often for assists and things like that because of the style of team he was on. You know, you look at how many, what seasons of 750 assists, I guess it is, he has compared to, Ozzy Smith, it's not close. Like, it's just not close. It's not even close compared to his peers. But that's, again, the style of team that he was playing for. So it speaks to your point. Yeah, and I think if if you had to really look at it, and I'm sure this is backed by the analytics, but it's also just anecdotal and also what the guys say about themselves, I think the Nationals really only have one above-average defender on the field, who is Victor Robles. No, Trey Turner actually, like – had a pretty down defensive year last year and has been really critical, self-critical of how he wants to improve on that. So I would say he, he has the potential to be, he'll be fine, but like really above, truly above average, I would say Victor Robles in center. And, huh. and uh, you know, young Gomes is a fine catcher and Trey Turner's is trying to get above average at shortstop. And Sterling Castro is now out of position playing somewhere where he started 30 career games before this year. And, and Josh Harrison's older and, and Josh Bell has his own deficiencies and Kyle Schwarber and Juan Soto in the corners are, Below average to you know fine. It's uh it's interesting. They've really built this team that has a clear deficiency that they're hoping will not prevent them from winning many games. So I think it's it'll be interesting to see how that's covered up throughout the year. Do you find their ballpark to be pretty neutral to allow for that? I mean that 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 plays into it too. I mean the Cardinals have a pretty big ballpark, so if they can have outfielders that run down and steal hits that might be out of the ballpark in Cincinnati, that, that adds to it. Do you think the ballpark in national with the nationals plays kind of even? So yeah, that it I think allows it does. for them to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Because even in 19, like Adam Eaton coming off, you know, his, his knee injuries and ankle injuries, like he is a shell of the defender. He was with the white Sox. So their corners have not been, and that doesn't mean it's good, but it haven't been impressive this whole run. This isn't like some revelation this year where it's, Oh my gosh, look at the outfield. Right. It's like Victor Robles is made up for a lot of lack of speed, to either the right or left of him. And mm-hmm. Anthony Rendon was a great defensive third baseman. So that's a, that's sort of its own thing. But other than that, like this team has sort of been built this way for a couple of years now. It just is a little bit more glaring this season. In the first game of the series, the Cardinals one through five hitters, I believe went two for 20 and they had eight strikeouts. So that fits exactly what you're talking about. Strikeout team. Um, not exactly a member of the $90 million crew who did it. Yeah. Uh, went out there in game one. Uh, the nadir of the Cardinals' current offensive struggles was in the National League Championship Series against the Washington Nationals, and they were held to a record low production um, in a really brief appearance in the NLCS, so brief that there are elements of the fan base that I think don't count it as an NLCS appearance. I think they, they, don't, <laughs> they don't recall it as an yeah. NLCS appearance. 
Um, the, the Nationals were on their way to a World Series championship there against Houston. In your book, Buzzsaw, which is out in paperback now and is a great read um, about that Washington Nationals team that struggled at the start and then rode the pitching really to the finish, you describe how the Nationals unplugged the Cardinals' offense. And I wonder if, A, you could describe that, and B, you know, is that something that they, they like kind of laid out for other teams how to do too? Yeah, it's, it's, it was really interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. Thanks for doing so. And they, uh, in that Braves game, game five of the NLDS, they noticed that the Braves were just trying to pound the outside half. And the Cardinals at that point, and, and you wrote about this really in a really detailed way, had had that deficiency, had that sort of team-wide cold zone that, that they – they made the counter adjustment too, right? In that Braves inning, they put up, you know, I think it was 10 rounds, right? Was it 10 yeah, rounds? Yeah. And if you look at the most of those at-bats, it's like outside fastball, outside breaking ball, and the hits are like into the right center, into the right center gap, down the right field line, like over and over, they're just pounding the ball the opposite way. And that's like really fundamental baseball, right? Like teams are going to go to your cold zone and you're going to adjust to it. And you're going to, whether it's move up on the plate, whether it's, you know, close your stance, like there's a lot of ways you can do that, whether it's just sort of like adjust your thinking to, you know, I'm going to look for that pitch and, and try and drive it the other way. Um, they they really, they counter-adjusted to the Braves really effectively. What the Nationals did was counter-adjusted to the counter-adjustment, and then the Cardinals were pretty much lost. So the Nationals, with the help of advanced scout Jim Cuthbert, who's since been hired by the Red Sox, um, is, you know, they, they thought that they could sort of tease the Cardinals into thinking they were doing the same thing the Braves did. And what they did then was if you look at a lot of the at-bats, particularly for Max Scherzer and Anibal Sanchez in games one and two of the NLCS, they were throwing to the outside of the plate, but they were intentionally actually throwing off the plate. Uh, mm-hmm. It was, you know, we all, we often think of balls as misses, right? That's, and that's probably a misconception um, across baseballs. Every time the ball's thrown outside the strike zone that the pitcher missed in this case, they were saying, Let's throw an inch or two off the plate. Let's put it where, you know, Paul DeYoung can't touch it. Let's put it where Yadier Molina can't touch this pitch. But make them think, oh, wow, okay, they're doing the same thing the Braves are doing. They're going to come outside and pound us and pound us. So we're going to sort of tune our brains or, or, or tune our approach to the fact that we're going to do the same thing we did in that turn in. We're going to pound the ball to the right field. And then all of a sudden, pitches are coming in on their hands. So that sort of early at-bat pitch on the outside half that – that sort of is corner off or, or zone off, as, as the Nationals would call it, um, set up the Cardinals to think they were being attacked in the same way, only to then find that, oh, now there's a 92-mile-per-hour fastball in my hands, or now there's a changeup you know, coming in on me. And it was ground out after ground out. It was strikeout. It was weak pop fly. They really effectively set up the Cardinals to assume they were being sort of pitched the same way, only to flip that on its head and... I mean, we saw what back-to-back no-hitter threats. Um, yeah. You know, Steven Strasburg carves them up in Game Three. Patrick Corbin, um, a bit less so, but the Nationals that game come out and put a seven spot up in the first innings. The ball's good, but uh, it was a really fascinating thing. I, I, I kind of started to see it uh, just watching, looking back. You know, those playoff runs, you end up staying up late at night and looking at at bat charts and whatnot. And then I actually was able to wrangle, you know, their advanced scouts, some other people, sort of in the in the celebration of the NLCS and. Kind of be like, you know, what's going on here? And again, we'll talk in a couple of days, right? Yeah, you know, I'll, 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 I'll call you. And, and it was kind of like, whoa, you know, you start to see the, the numbers back up and approach. A lot of times, I feel like you have teams tell you you did, they did something, and you see it in one or two at bats. But you're like, oh, maybe that's overstated. In this case, it was really deliberate. 
in the way in which they were able to sort of systematically break down the Cardinals. Did they marvel at the fact that the Cardinals didn't adjust? Yeah, I mean, I th- I think yes. I think you also have to consider like the Sanchez game yeah. is a bit more baffling, right? Because he's he's conceivably the easiest to hit of the four, right? Like he had he had you know he was fine in his Dodger start in the NLDS. He was ends up being okay, you know, hit up hit pretty hard by the Astros in the World Series. I think there's probably a misrepresentation of that of that playoff run for him in terms of how effective he was solely because people like to remember the near no hitter at Bush Stadium, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we, that's like the one that stands out. So he probably gets a sort of the label of being one of the guys in that run that was really clicking. Frankly, like he was hit pretty hard. It was that night that just was, you know, they were baffled. So I think, you know, it's hard to ever, I don't think anyone's ever surprised in the organization when Strasburg or Scherzer carve a team up, you know, game plan or otherwise, like it's just kind of what happens. But I think the Sanchez game, you know, to see that he goes three times through and um, and there never really was that counter adjustment from the from the Cardinals, I think that was a surprise for sure. What is this? <laughs> and then do you watch the Cardinals differently? Like you watch the series here, or watch spring training. Do you watch for that same approach against them? Uh, you know, do you watch the lineup to say, okay, well now – I see that they they found that cold zone and they're going to continue to strike it. Like when you're watching uh, Fetty pitch the other night and yeah. talking about like the cutters that he had. I mean, is that something that you're watching for? I do, yeah, because we saw him work in and out in the same way last night. I mean, and that's just like you know, going in and out with your pitches is is a general sort of you know sequence. But mm-hmm. it's interesting now with the context of them unearthing that or, or sort of seeing that as an approach that worked in 19 in a really critical series. And some of the same guys obviously being around for the Cardinals now, uh, it's a, it's a interesting uh, way to watch the Cardinals in this case. Um, the other night it was most apparent against Arenado. So that was, you know, that was uh, interesting to see Fetty has been throwing a cutter uh, a lot more than he used to. And, and he used it to sort of do that same sequence where he went outside with it got him to chase or got him to foul it off and then and then you know came back right in either with his sinker or a really good front door curveball that got Arnado looking in the first inning. So um yeah I was I was impressed by that um with Eric Fetty. I think it, it did sort of make me remember that. I mean there also was a uh, runner interference call that was reminiscent of game six of the World Series. So I think there's like a lot of things now where they're burned into your head where you start to say, oh man, that that's like that's like October of twenty nineteen, right? You you pour so much time into that season it's hard to not uh have it sort of pop up at random moments. So, uh, but definitely being back at Bush made me sort of think more about that approach they took. And, and you saw it a bit in Fetty start. It was interesting. This past spring training was, uh, was rather intensive because it was a lot of the same teams over and over again. Yeah. There's the grapefruit yeah. league treasure coast division played. Uh, <laughs> I think that's what we're going to officially call it. The treasure <laughs> yeah, coast that. division. Um, and they can play for the treasure coast, I guess, uh, treasure chest, I guess would be the, the, the winner of the, uh, of the, of the series. But what was your impression of the Cardinals seeing them so often then? I mean, did, did they, did, I'm probably going to maybe uh, seed the cloud here for your answer, but do they look like a team that is kind of just spinning its wheels in that same bog? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think they look a lot. I would say I'm used to it. The nationals, watching teams that have obvious holes. Like the Nationals, again, spend about $200 million a year on their roster in terms of CBT hit. Their net, their net present, you know, their payroll is a lot lower. But they spend around $200 million a year, and 
but they'd spend re- in a really top-heavy way. Like their money, again, is committed to the rotation, maybe get a big-time reliever or two. And they leave a lot of question marks that and kind of just figure them out as they go to allow themselves to spend in the ways in which they want, which is big bats, big arms, figure it out later. If you think of that World Series team, I always say it was it was like one through eight was really, really good. Not one through eight in the order, one through eight like on the roster. If you ranked the players, one through eight, one through nine was really good. 10 through 25 was give or take. Like they were it, that was not a World Series team, 10 through 25. It was but it was a great team one through nine. When I watch a team like the Cardinals, I I always think like, man, like maybe the upside isn't the same, but they don't have the holes that this Nationals team does. They're not banking on a rookie third baseman, in this case, Carter Keeping this spring, to figure it out on the fly and become a starter. Um, they're not, you know, you know, coin flipping for, you know, uh, you know, a, a third, th- fourth outfielder. I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not following as closely, obviously, but it seems when I actually see them come in, whether it's West Palm or I'm at, I'm at Jupiter for a game, that even if it's not built maybe to, uh, to wow you on a given night or pop your eyes open, it does seem more system, systematically built across the three phases being rotation, lineup, and bullpen. And I could be totally off, but for me, they don't seem to leave as much to chance as a national do. Um, maybe that's a bad read, though. No, that, that actually kind of speaks to their model, right? Like they would rather have stability across the you know, and that actually has been a complaint of the, the of the fan base, I guess, is that, you know, good at a lot of things, great at not one thing. Right. Where's the great player? You know, and then they go out and get Arenado. It's like, okay, here's the great player. And then right. the question is, well, where's the great pitcher? You know, Jack Flaherty was supposed to be. Is he going to be? He has the ability to be. So where's that great pitcher? And I guess that then it's just kind of this like, well, okay, where's the next? Where's the next great? Because, you know, the, the, the Cardinals – John Mozalek had an interesting line is like they make a trade for Paul Goldschmidt and you know, it wasn't 24 hours before he ran into somebody and they said, okay, that's great. What's next? Like right. what's next? And so the Cardinals model, you know, to the frustration sometimes of the, of Cardinal fans is to be good at as many things as possible. And the question is, well, does that just lead to a good team? Meaning one that gets into the playoffs, but not a great team, that ever strives beyond that and gets to a championship. And what you have described with the nationals is a little bit like, uh, you know, um, pocket sevens, right? <laughs> like yeah. not, not a bad hand, but you want to, you know, you, you go all in hoping that maybe this is the time that the, the seven comes up on the river. Right. Totally. And all of a sudden you, then it, then it becomes a great team and it's willing to not be good at all phases to gamble to be a great team. And that, totally. that is definitely something that the Cardinals uh, are reluctant to do. Uh, and they probably feel that that's part market size, but that's also just part of how data-driven and conservative they are with their choices. Yeah, I mean, because it's like, for me, if you sign, let's say, I'm, I'm just going to sort of throw around random names here, but if you sign Jake Lamb and this winter to play third base, and you really are capping yourself at that $200 million, that's maybe $4 million, and now your left fielder is now not Kyle Schwarber. It's a $6 million left fielder, right? But instead of instead of fixing both those holes or putting a Band-Aid on both of them, they go out and get a guy they want who's a middle-of-the-order bat, high power potential, and they say, third base, we'll figure it out. And that, to me, like I, I struggle with what, which is what's right there. I mean, the obvious answer for fans would be, we'll just spend the extra money, right? Go from 200 to 206, whatever it may be. And I get that, especially when you see a team like the Dodgers doing it. And you want your your team to act in the same way. But 
if you if you use the 2019 model, and I'm reticent to do that because it, in some ways it's an outlier, but like if the Nationals go out and build a really, really good bullpen in the offseason, maybe they don't spend that money on Corbin. That that team probably doesn't win, right? Like that like the, the team with another good setup man, no, they needed that frontline starter because he ends up becoming a reliever in, in the postseason. They rely on six arms. It's like it's funny to say because I would not suggest any team going to the playoffs with six pitchers that they're willing to use in any game, which they basically did from start to finish, like of the whole postseason. But if that team is more comfortable using eight or nine, like it probably doesn't break their way if they try to sort of build to have a deeper staff that has more options. I, I just I just think the sort of the collision of all the factors there worked out and it was the right people for that model, but it actually ends up working for them that they, like you said, for the Cardinals, okay, what are you great at? Well, the Nationals said we're going to have the best damn rotation in baseball and, and then the rest will sort of just fall in line behind that. And then you flip a coin, like you said, pocket sevens, and it works. You get a World Series out of it. How sustainable is that on the other side? We're seeing it now. I mean, last year they were not very good. Injuries hurt, whatever it may be. This year I'm sort of curious to see what the sort of post-World Series looks like because it's the first full season, and I'm not really sure if you can run that back again and, and make that work. I think they, they probably are are better and more balanced than they were in 19 this year, but they might not have that same you know obvious strength. So I'm, uh, I'm curious how that, that plays out. The uh, the best damn pitcher on that best damn pitching staff is from the best damn baseball city in the country. <laughs> Am I supposed to say that? Uh, uh, Max Scherzer, St. Louis kid, uh, Mizzou yeah. All-American. Uh, you know, he is by far one of the best right-handed pitchers of his generation. He is burnishing a Hall of Fame career. I mean, he's going to be um, probably the next St. Louis native to go into the Hall of Fame, um, you know, unless some St. Louis native beats him to it, but he's headed to Cooperstown. There's no doubt about it. He's also entering his final year of his contract with the Nationals. Yep. You, as part of the season preview, did a story um, by identifying kind of a turning point in his career. Is that a good way to describe it? Can, yep. can you kind of walk us through that? Sure. Um, you know, there was a there was a trend in the, in the mid-2000s of guys who you had a year then after you were drafted to – to sign your first contract and players who, who didn't get that deal they wanted um, ended up going to play independent ball. So JD drew did it, Luke Hochevar and um, then Max Scherzer. And, and what they kind of did was they, they almost had a staring contest with teams as Max described it himself, where, you know, I'm going to go pitch in front of all 30 teams in, in Max's case, Fort Worth. Sometimes it was in you know, Minnesota uh, and, what I'm going to do is show you in this case, it was the diamondbacks that all these 30 teams are here watching me and I'm going to shove it against these independent league guys. Some of them way older than I am. And if I re-enter the draft, which was the option he was weighing, I'll probably go even higher than you picked me. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and I'm going to maybe even get more money than you're offering. So in this case, the diamondbacks were offering him about half of what he thought he deserved as a frontline college starter in the first round of the draft. So he goes to Fort Worth and he's excellent across three starts and, Every team in baseball comes and lifts their radar gun. He's throwing 95, 96, which, which then was maybe what now is 98, 99, 100. And, uh, and he got his money. You know, he ends up getting the deal he asked for originally. And, and for him, as when you mentioned turning points, I, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting, you know, because in this contract year, what he says now is like, I, I let it work out on the mound. It might sound cliche, right? Like any player would say, I wanted to you know work out in the field, but Think about being 22 years old 
you know, reaching your dream, being drafted in the first round by a major league baseball team and having your agent, in this case, Scott Boris, explain to you that the way in which you're going to get money you guys are asking for and the way Max described it actually helps set the market for future college starters mm-hmm. is you're going to have to keep pitching and keep proving yourself. And you say, well, didn't I already do that? Wasn't, you know, wasn't two amazing years at Mizzou enough? Wasn't dominating the Northwoods League, you know, enough? And no, in this case, it wasn't, you know, he had to go, you know, one step further. And I think it sort of taught him that this is a business that, you know, you, you can't just uh, be, be grateful for the team drafting you and, and just take whatever is offered. There's a time when you need to fight for yourself and going to his last year of his contract. I mean, I think he's obviously made, made his money. He's, he's, uh, you know, everyone around here calls it the best, one of the best contracts in, in baseball and um maybe baseball history, you know, and you get seven years of Max Scherzer and see what he's done for you across that span, including a world series. But he doesn't believe that, you know, earning the next step, earning a, whether it's an extension with the nationals, a new deal, um, the next team on a short term, probably high AAV contract. I can, if I can imagine it is not going to be worked out, you know, screaming across the table. It's going to be worked out if he can just dominate. So um, that, that mindset goes back to Fort Worth for him being 22 years old and having to prove himself all over again. And I think he's carried it, you know, through his contract negotiations with the Tigers, um, to the Nationals, and now, again, when he's at the end of this um, pretty incredible deal that he's uh, turned in for the Nationals, he's going to uh, he's going to keep keep on with that. Do you think yeah, there's going to be conversation at any point this this season about an extension, or is that something that either Max or the Nationals would want to table? I think it's it's not going to be active. Um, I think it's like I don't think it's hey every week let's check in and take your temperature. Um, I we know from the past with the Nationals and Scott Boris um, with both Mike Rizzo and ownership, which he obviously has a really well-documented relationship with that these deals kind of just happen quickly. It's, you know, it's sometimes that's really advantageous for the Nationals in the case of mm-hmm. Max Scherzer. Sometimes it's not so much in the case of Rafael Soriano or Matt Wieters. So, um, but they've, you know, Steven Strasburg's extent, uh, new contract was with Scott Boris and, and Max Scherzer and, you know, now, now they're going through Juan Soto's arbitration and, you know, even down onto like Eric Fetty and Luis Garcia. I mean, the, the Scott Boris to Nationals pipeline is um, is very, you know, robust. And I think Nationals fans maybe want to cover their eyes when they think about Bryce Harper and Anthony Rendon to other Boris clients who did not stay. Mm-hmm. But I think the relationship's there where it doesn't need to be like, you know, you, you've heard the Francisco Lindor reports of like, let's go to dinner and talk about this and let's sit down and have a conversation. I mean, I think Mike Rizzo, who was part of that uh, Diamondback scouting staff, I should add, that originally drafted Scherzer, um, you know, back in the mid-2000s. I, I think that uh, it doesn't need to be, you know, we're going to have active conversations. It's going to be, I think Scherzer would rather not do that during the season to begin with. But if, you know, August, September comes around and they, it seems like their interests are aligned, then it could just be a spur of a moment. Hey, Max, come into my office for a minute. Let's talk numbers. Um, get Scott on the line and, and see where this takes us. I don't think it's going to have to be anything formal at any point um and then obviously he gets the free agency he could have some bitter so it, it gets a little bit different but mm-hmm. uh, i don't think it's going to be a major conversation throughout the season do you think there's mutual interest in that D- definitely i think there is but i, I also think that a really cha- a challenging part of it for the nationals is that they obviously gave a really big deal to steven strasberg um two winters ago which is subject for debate already i mean i think there was to go see anthony rendon get the same contract elsewhere um, was was tough for some Nationals fans to swallow who think maybe the lineup could have used, used that money instead of the rotation. But mm. that aside, when you invest seven years and $245 million in Strasburg, now you're figuring that Scherzer is you know going to cost 
a, a good amount again on a short-term deal, but probably really high AAV. You're you're now continuing to build your identity around the same group of arms for the foreseeable future. Patrick Corbin has th- you know four years left on his big deal, which is six years, 140 million. Um, Strasburg's just six years left on his contract. Now Scherzer, you're restarting that. So I think the only reason why I say the interest might not be totally aligned is because the Nationals could use this as opportunity to go in a new direction and say we're going to use that money and spend it on we're going to split it maybe you know we're going to spend it on a good third starter and a really good catcher or you know whatever it may be so uh i i think that's in a ideal world they can accomplish those goals while also bringing scherzer back but if he pitches well enough and is going to demand a ton of ton of money then it could you come to time where you it's a pivot point for the nationals in there and how they build their core and how they build their identity that said the deferred money on his initial deal they're going to be paying around 15 million anyway to pit, to not pitch for the next season just because of the deferred money. So that's also a factor as well. Um, but obviously adding a new contract to that is a big financial burden. That's a great point about the deferred money. You know, the the, uh, the differences between the two teams, between the Washington Nationals and the St. Louis Cardinals that we discussed earlier, Max Scherzer sort of personifies that because here in St. Louis, um, it's hard to think of a greater miss than the Cardinals and Max Scherzer. When he was a free agent, the Cardinals just did not pursue him. I mean, they, 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 if they had any conversations, it was brief. Um, it was fact-finding, but it was not aggressive. Over and over again, I heard that they would not engage in chasing him. One of the reasons why is they just did not think that the lifespan of a big contract at that kind of money for an aging right-handed pitcher was going to have a return. It was a misread on their part. Either they didn't know him or, you know, they or he – I mean, it's, it's, you could argue he's the outlier, right? Like he's the right-handed pitcher who didn't encounter this stuff, but maybe get to know the guy too and all the work right. he does to make sure he does avoid injury, does avoid the missing seasons, does uh, you know offer a return on that kind of investment at those kind of years. But the Cardinals, conservative, again, good, not great, that kind of thing. They talked themselves out of the pursuit of the hometown star yeah. and thought that contract is just not going to be – it's not going to give the return that they want. It's too volatile, I heard over and over again, to sign a right-handed pitcher into his 30s at that kind of money. And it would, you know, handcuff them in other regards. And, you know, so they didn't, you know, to quote again, and somebody who was aware of them, they did not engage. They just didn't participate. And, you know, a few years ago, I talked to the president of the team, and he described that as like a big mistake on their part, that they just mm. completely misread and that, that that was a lesson that they had to learn. This was going into Bryce Harper's free agent uh, winter. You know, it was they were like they, they, they needed to learn from that about the benefit of at least chasing the stars because you might catch the guy if you get to know him. And if any team should have known Max Scherzer, it should have been the Cardinals, um, you know, because they had him and they drafted him out of high school. They had him in the backyard. They scouted him. They knew him. Um, they could see what kind of pitcher he was becoming because we all could. So they had the, the same information. Um, and they just thought that that was a big miss on their part. Yeah, it's interesting because you're right in him being the outlier. And I can actually think like if you can compare the hometown star in that case to what the Nationals end up doing with Steven Strasburg, which is He's not hometown, obviously. He's from Southern California, but he kind of becomes hometown because he's the first pick in 09 and he's becomes your World Series hero and your MVP, World Series MVP. And that deal last year, it almost seemed so obvious, right? They would re-sign him and re-sign him to a big contract. But when you actually look at it, you're like, well, 
well, should it be so obvious? And then you start to take a step back, right? Like maybe because some of the Cardinals reasoning on Scherzer, which I agree is a miss and was a misread, could that have then been applied to a situation with the Nationals with another righty who is going into his age 32 season, uh, is going to demand seven years and 245 million, which again is a really big number. And uh, I'm, I'm interested to see how that contract looks over the course of its lifespan, because that to me is more instructive of how teams should deal with aging right-handers who have some injury history, whereas Max Scherzer never had an arm injury, a major arm injury in his life. Like he is such a different case. So big miss for the Cardinals. Uh, but I am, it's interesting to hear that reasoning for it because I think the Nationals maybe could have applied some of that to the Strasburg situation. And yeah, uh, and, and then the lesson here is that Scherzer is different. So right. maybe don't put everybody into the same data bucket. Um, right. But that's what teams have to do because they're, they're, they're now making decisions based on risk management, not always on talent. Um, right. But it does seem like the Nationals make some decisions based on hope um, as opposed to based yeah. on raw data. I think so. And I think they're also like willing to say we're paying $140 million in Patrick Corbin's case for the first three years because we mm-hmm. think we're going to be good in that window rather right. than like rather than the you know miscalculation or the sort of theory that you're actually just paying 24 or whatever it is, $24.5 million for every season. That's not really realistic, right? You're actually paying way more for the first year. Um, right. I think I'll, I'll give my uh, colleague Adam Kilgore credit that he said Adam Kil- or, uh, that Patrick Corbin could have joined a monastery after the World Series and the contract would have been worth it, um, which I thought was a great point, you know, but that's kind of the idea, right? You're paying for these small windows. You're just having to make the big long-term investment in order to do that. It sounds like the Cardinals maybe not supposed to make those. Yeah, the Cardinals told me once that you have to bake in a pitcher missing an entire year, whether or not that is actually one calendar year or just parts of multiple years. You have to account for that because that's what the trend says because of – because of the physical demand of pitching and because of, uh, you know, the number of injuries that they see, but also how delicate and careful they can be with their pitching decisions. You just have to kind of bake that in. And then how you spread the money around the other years or how long that contract is. Now, all of a sudden, you start talking about, well, you got to count for them missing a year and a half or two years. Right. Like that. Right. So that leads me to the big question then. What would have to happen for the Nationals this year for them to trade Max Scherzer? Yeah, that's uh, that is a particularly interesting question in St. Louis, right? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, there was rumbles of it in nineteen when they started nineteen thirty one. Obviously, that turned out okay, but I think this this front office is stubborn, and it's stubborn in a very effective way because I don't think you can keep a championship window open for a decade without being stubborn, right? And and pushing sometimes when you should maybe step back, so. I think in order to start selling, really selling at the deadline, I think it would have to be a pretty catastrophic year. Like, I don't think this is a team that will ever sell when they're like six out in July, you know, like it's just not going to, they always have this belief, whether it's founded in logic or not, that it's going to turn around. Frankly, that 19 season, again, I, I think it's, it's, it's bad to keep harping on it, but that maybe fueled that a bit too and could end up maybe hurting the eventual rebuild or the eventual reset button. But in, in some cases sort of makes it so that belief that things can turn around and go for, you know, go your way is, is, is a lot less bendable maybe than it should be. So um, I think it would take a really, really bad first four months of this year for them to be in position to be selling Max Scherzer uh, or anyone for that matter. Should they get to that point, they're set up to really replenish what's been perennially ranked as a bottom five, bottom one system in baseball, because it's not just Scherzer, it's, Brad Hand on a one-year deal. 
It's Daniel Hudson in the last year of his contract. It's Starling Castro in the last year of his contract. It's Kyle Schwarber on a one-year deal. It's John Lester on a one-year deal. So, I mean, in theory, if you're that far back in the standings, those guys are probably not performing that well, but they could probably net you something to a contending team if you get to the point where you have to sort of start selling off parts. I mean, it's they have Jan Gomes, another person, one-year deal. So um, they have, they're in position that it should come to that, that they probably could make a pretty big splash on the market, but I think it would take a lot. What role does the division play in that? I mean, if they're, like you said, if they're six games out, obviously the wild card plays a role in it. But look, they, they might have to leapfrog over two other teams just to get yeah. into second place in that division. Um, it seems like a eight-game deficit in that division may not be the same as an eight-game deficit in the NL Central. No, it's not because, in, in theory, you're you're both trying to – leapfrog teams and also you're playing those teams often and they're, Correct, they're pretty yeah. tough so i'd say you're right you probably have to color that a bit so maybe if you know maybe if 10 games out is the threshold it goes to eight i think it's a good point to say that if the nationals can look at it um but you know this is a team that that held on to bryce harper in 2018 you know because right. they because they couldn't you stomach the idea of losing him and wanting to maybe extend their window to exclusively negotiate with him and that was a different case obviously he's much younger than Scherzer is now, but I think those kind of pivot points where you could have seen a, a six prospect haul from the Astros, for example, and then instead you get nothing is are really instructive to how you can view them now. It's, it's a team that's really hesitant to do anything but try to win. It will hold on to that. Like that year in 2018, when, when they actually end up in August after the, not after the waiver trade deadline, they end up selling Brian Madsen, Daniel Murphy, Matt Adams, you know, Gio Gonzalez, four weeks ago they traded for Kelvin Herrera. Like mm-hmm. when they were not really in the mix, you know, they were they were they were on the doorstep, but they weren't you know, they weren't a first place team pad in their bullpen. They were trying to patch holes at a time when most teams would have been saying, we're gonna be offloading. And then, you know, it doesn't turn their way in three, four weeks and they start to actually start selling they start selling those pieces. But, you know, they were trying to hold on that year. Like they were really they were they were buyers before they were sellers, which is like for a team to go from buying to selling in the same month is like that doesn't happen a lot, you know. But that's a very nationals thing. Before they sold, they had to buy just <laughs> to see if they could turn it around. So I think that's the organizational mindset more than trying to look for opportunities to uh, to build the system through a through, through trade deadline sales. So maybe yeah. the Cardinal fans should look for is uh, you know as June arrives, late June arrives, early July arrives, see if the <laughs> Nationals where they are in the standings and if they start to buy. Before they sell, that's the tell. Yeah, if they get a injury prone reliever on like on like July nineteenth, maybe Max Scherzer will be heading to uh, the Cardinals a week later. Yeah how how exposed would they be if they do struggle this year and don't make trades to replenish the farm system, and all those one year contracts leave? Extremely exposed. I mean, I think I think they they I mean. Teams like one-year deals generally, especially with the kind of guys they're getting. You know, Kyle Schwarber in this case coming off a bad, a bad season, and uh, you know relievers are volatile, and you'd like to sort of have them on a case-by-case basis rather than a long-term deal. But I also think that the one-year contracts are are strategic in a sense that they know that on the other side of this season they're going to look different. Whether it's no more shares or in the rotation, whether it's you know trying to go a new direction of maybe not being necessarily a three-headed monster and on the staff, but trying to build in a new way. Like I think there's a recognition that they will not say that they're not going to compete. They're not, they will not say the word rebuild. They will not say reset. There's none of that, at least in the public lexicon from the nationals front office. That said, I think there's a recognition that the identity of the team could look different. And 
while these one-year contracts are setting them up to use 2022 as some sort of pivot. And I don't know exactly what, how that looks. I think it's a really daunting thing with the, with the farm system being what it is. They have two starters. They're very excited about coming through the system. A third one who's a bit younger, but has potential as well. It's really thin after that. But I think if those guys maybe get in the mix, it's a younger staff that's team controlled. They spend more money on the lineup potentially. And maybe you see a different national sort of look, but um, in some ways, yes, they could get caught flat footed with these one year deals, but I also think it's strategic in a way to go a different direction. Hmm. That's fascinating. I uh, know firsthand or first sight or whatever I'm supposed to say, what it's like for a team to emerge from uh, outbreak. Um, the Cardinals had 17 days on the sidelines watching yeah. the rest of the game go on. Uh, it was pretty close to the start of their year. They got uh, five games into it, the three games at home against the Pittsburgh Pirates and then off to Minnesota for two games and then didn't see the Cardinals for a couple for more than two weeks before a slew of doubleheaders walk, welcomed them back. The Nationals situation is a little different, not as long in quarantine, not as long off the field, um, but they do have doubleheaders awaiting them. They did miss their opening day. Do you do you have a feel at all what the fallout will be from that? Do you get any sense that 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 there'll be some times here where they're looking for their sea legs a little bit? You know, I, I think it's an interesting question. I, I think from a baseball standpoint, I imagine you would choose to have this at the start of your year because what would be worse if Max Scherzer throws 105 pitches and has to shut down for 10 days, right? Or mm-hmm. Steven Strasburg. Like Right, right, exactly. Or Steven Strasburg, you know, fires up to that number and then has to, you know, has to sit in his house or throw against a fence. Like, I think while it was not what anyone wanted, it, it actually becomes somewhat advantageous that it, that it was beginning of the year. Like, if you could say we're going to have to have this at some point, which obviously no team actually has that ultimatum, but you would want that to come out of the gate. But you're just paused before you even really started. And I think that's that's good for them overall. I think there's there's some big question marks right now but their bullpen that exists independently of the outbreak and they they weren't really sorted out in that time away so i think that's maybe the biggest question mark now but the lineup was bad against the dodgers and braves like a lot of teams are going to be bad against the dodgers and braves this season right like i think that wasn't necessarily symptomatic of missing a week maybe a few hits go your way if you've more in a rhythm but overall like clayton kershaw walker bueller and julio urias are those guys they just are and um but I think now, you know, we saw last night or we saw earlier this week against the Cardinals that uh, they were they were clicking pretty well. Uh, you know, I'm sure there will be other games where they slump. But for me, I think it's, you sort of reset it now. If your arms are OK, your team's OK, because the hitters will will be fine. It might take them a few days. But overall, there's eight guys in the lineup. And if you don't get it done, it means you probably wouldn't have anyway, outbreak or not. What was it like covering an outbreak as as opposed to just reading about one last year? Yeah, right. I mean, I read all your guys' coverage. I, I was very in tune with the Marlins' coverage as well because the Nationals yeah, had to cancel. Part of that. Yeah, the Nationals had to cancel a uh, a series going down there and had a team vote to not go to Miami. So, um, and, you know, I, I think it's it's interesting, and I don't know how you feel. Like, uh, it's it can be it can be exhausting to be the person that no one wants to hear from. Is maybe the way I can describe it, right? Like, as a reporter covering that, obviously our jobs entail a good amount of asking questions that people don't want to be asked. But when, when the, the, we, the weird hoops these teams jump through for the sake of privacy and, and not getting out information, like I think you're extra the person now that doesn't want to pop up on their phone if you're the GM or if you're the PR person or if you're a coach. And that, you know, it's fine for a couple of days. When you get to a week of that, you're like, man, 
I would love an answer. You know, it's like, I think, I'm sure, I'm sure you felt that before too. And it's like being the person everyone's avoiding can be tough. Uh, and, and that's sort of what covering an outbreak felt like because everyone's just so hesitant to share anything because there's this court of public opinion aspect. And there's this like, you know, there's people who feel like if you got COVID at the grocery store, you are somehow a bad person. And I think I, I understand the league's sort of stance on privacy in some degrees to others. I think it's detrimental and actually leads to a lot of, you know, piecemeal information coming out that's not always accurate. And, um, but to be the person who's trying to cut through that and, and do this honestly, as I know you were too, can, uh, is, is both rewarding, but also a really, uh, tiring affair, I would say. The best way. I wondered, like, uh, I, spent too much of the time chasing rumors or debunking rumors that yeah. just, it felt like, what am I doing? Because like my logic says, this isn't the case. My knowledge of the virus says this isn't the case. What I asked the Cardinals about two days ago in Minnesota suggested this isn't the case. We saw their practices. We knew that if the virus found a seam, it could spread pretty fast. And that was true for a lot of teams that thought, well, we've established a bubble, and so we're safe on the plane or safe on the field, and it's like, or safe in the batting cage or safe in the media Zoom room. Well, this isn't the case. You have to continue those protocols. You know, you haven't elbowed out the virus because as soon as you find a seam, it's going to spread. Um, and it, it felt like we had arrived at some knowledge of that, though our knowledge was growing. I mean, look, I learned a lot just in that 17 days about the practices I would then take into the rest of the season as I drove around a lot of the things that like talking to either experts or talking to the Cardinals as they tried to become experts or talking to major league baseball a lot of that informed like my own view of choices I would make on the road pay attention to saturation avoid long conversations go open air these things that they talked about um, but I also just felt like I spent too much time chasing smoke that other people would throw out there without having to chase it themselves. And that was frustrating. Yeah, um, absolutely. And that made me the bad guy because I was the one asking the questions as opposed to the folks who could uh, lob a rumor and then run. Totally. I agree with that too. I mean, cause you, you and I are in the same position where a story has to go in the paper the next day. Right. And like, it, that's a lot different than throwing out a tweet and saying 10 minutes later, oh, actually I was misinformed on that. Like, you know, we don't get to do that, which is in a COVID outbreak situation. I mean, it's, that, that's a stressful endeavor all the time, right? That says, for me, that's as stressful writing about a guy's pitch mix as it is about anything else, because you just never want to be wrong. But right. in the sake of health is at stake, right. In the sake of rumors flying about this and that and the other, um, I did find it to be, you know, that's a, that was a, that was a tough part of it. And also I probably think even just two, a week or so out of that coverage and is is trying to maybe chase black and white answers too often too, because what I've, what, what I've learned from it, both from a team policy perspective, from a league policy perspective, from a health policy perspective, is like, yes, like we, we deal in, you know, concrete answers, but there's so much gray too, right? Like nationals, like, you know, they don't, you know, they, they're at one point they had a test that was presumed positive, but it wasn't positive yet. You know, and everyone on everyone on Twitter, how could it be? You know, how could they not know? Well, sometimes, you know, you look at the levels of COVID tests over a week span at the lab and, and they can see it rising, right? Like that's that's just, so we're not going to say four positive tests yet. We're going to say three plus a presumed positive that could later be confirmed as positive. And that seemed like that was such a tough thing, you know, in the market, everyone's like, how, are they lying? You know, well, they're not lying. They're actually just, this is how, you know, there's sometimes there's just gray. There's, the rules are not yes or no. The rules are not black and white. The rules are just gray or they're 
or the situation is gray. So for me, always trying to get an answer of, you know, did the test come back negative? Did the whole batch, did it, did it produce a positive result? Sometimes the answer is we don't know. And being okay with that um, is tough. And trying to untangle maybe why we don't know is tough. But I think that's incumbent on us to do that because um, it's not always necessarily having the exact answer we need on something. It can be, you know, trying to sort of deal in the gray area and explain that situation as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Our, uh, our forums do not reward the phrase, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it is one that I have in hosting chats or going on radio or going on TV. It is one over the last several years that I have forced myself to be comfortable saying, yep. I don't know, but I will endeavor to find out is a really good phrase. Yep. I don't know because they don't know is right. also a really good phrase. Right. And I'm not going to guess. Um, my, my sports editor had a great line at one point in time, you know, and it speaks to what you were talking about is like your job is to be right when the paper hits the porch because you can't delete the paper on the porch. Right. That's that that's pretty. That's yeah. OK. All right. Yep. I like I that. to be right for the porch. Well, it's funny because the Nat season was delayed, right? And we have a, you know, we, as I'm sure you guys do, we send the whole, basically the whole newsroom out to cover opening day. So it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's the Metro staff, it's the two photographers, it's the columnists and the, and the feature writers and everyone comes out. So every day I feel the question of, is opening day going to be today in the morning? And I was like, well, you know, if I say, I think so, 12 people are now going to get in motion to the park. So I need right. to be honest and say, I don't know. I, cause I really didn't, you know, until until baseball put out, even even the night when they decided it was, you know, there were leaks that said, you know, that opening day is tomorrow. I had people telling me with the team, like, we actually haven't decided that yet. So even then, when it was yeah. apparent from some really talented reporters who, in the end, were right, I still was saying to my editors, I can't even tell you right now to set the whole machine in motion and get everybody there. Wait. Yeah. You know, I, I, so I think there's a lot of that where even just in the office getting asked, you know, what do you, what do you think or do the – who's, you know, how many COVID cases. And I had to be honest, and it is tough. You're right. I think it's it's nice for me to hear you say, getting more used to saying those words because they aren't easy, but they are a lot better than, you know, not pretending, but sort of fudging it because that's way worse. So I'll have to, yeah. I'll have to think about that too. You have to be confident in your ability to find information and confident in your ability to acknowledge that I don't have all the information. Totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the Cardinals and Nationals play six time in 10 days. If uh, we were covering hockey, we would be talking about the uh, irritations that that would bring and perhaps the fracases and brouhaha's that would await in D.C. Instead, we're covering baseball. So we'll talk about how that will fray the bullpens and how that will set up uh, you know, the scouting report for how they'll adjust. And maybe it gives the Cardinals a chance to finally adjust to the 2019 approach that uh, the nationals have worked out so well. And every other team is doing because the Cardinals continue to search for offense for year three now. So I have that. All right, Jesse, thank you so much for joining me for this. That's Jesse Doherty. The, what are you baseball writer, Washington and nationals beat writer? What is your official title? Beat writer. Yeah. Washington nationals beat writer for the Washington post. That's what they, that's right. what they call me. So Washington nationals beat writer for the Washington post and author of Buzzsaw, now available in paperback with um, an addition from the 2020 season, correct? Like you yes. updated it? Yes, I did. I, um, I, I don't mind saying this as a teaser. I, I wrote a fictional account of what opening day would have been in 2020 had it actually happened and the Nationals actually had a full house to celebrate oh, their World Series. So Fascinating. That's cool. Yes. 
Yeah, it was like it was sort of like twisted. It was like twisted fan fiction. It was my it was my editor at Simon and Schuster. I give him credit for that. I I wrote this. I wrote a afterward that I was fairly proud of. Had some new details from the season of dealing with the coronavirus and pandemic. And then he I, he he read it. And he said, "You know, this is good. I like it." And then he said, "What would opening day have been like?" And I was like, "Oh man, I don't know." He's like, "How about you try?" And I was like, "Oh wow." So it's not the whole afterward, but about you know fifty percent of it is this sort of fictional look at what opening day would have been like and had it actually happened as it did, which obviously it didn't. And I was actually at the park that day. I walked around and reported from what was mostly a ghost town and empty yeah. bars and empty restaurants. So um, I, I, I provide both the, the fictional fan fiction um, sort of torture and then also the real, um, the reality of what the situation was. That's fascinating. It's so interesting to think that that team won't be celebrated by a full house until a reunion. Yeah, and probably you know never will be because getting those guys back will be like herding cats at that point, right? I mean, some guys will get their due. You, know, you figure Juan Soto, Trey Turner, Steven Strasburg, maybe Max, even next you know next year or later this year, whenever the tennis numbers go up. But as a whole, that group will never probably be celebrated together unless they can get them back in you know ten years. Um, they have the parade. Yeah, yeah, right. They have the parade. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate it. You can find all of his work at the Washington Post. You can find Buzzsaw wherever you get your books. Independent bookstores are great, and uh, they will do that book as an order for you. Again, it's Buzzsaw by Jesse Doherty. This has been the best podcast in baseball. Get organized with Closet by Design of St. Louis. Update your closets, garage, office, pantry, and more. Call 1-800-BY-DESIGN. That's 1-800-BY-D-E-S-I-G-N. Best podcast in baseball. It's available at stltoday.com or anywhere you get your podcast. It's sponsorships like Closets by Design that make the, the podcast possible. And what makes sponsorships possible is subscriptions and reviews. So any of those are welcome. I do read them. I do look to improve as a result of them. So thank you all for your patience through spring training. And we'll continue trying to do this podcast weekly throughout the course of the season. Jesse, again, thank you so much for joining me here for the best podcast in baseball again and jesse doherty of the washington post i'm st louis post dispatch baseball writer Derek gould talk to you soon um so it's interesting that you bring up the boris connection to the nationals because we were talking last night that it looks like the boris connection to the nationals now has a rival and that's the NL Central pipeline <laughs> to the Nationals. Yeah. We're like we're like watching an all-star team from the NL Central from three years ago with Bell and Schwarber and Lester. Yeah. It's like you know that that that's now where they're shopping. That's where the Nationals are shopping now yeah. in, the, uh, in the NL Central. For sure, the the old Cubs connection is strong. <laughs>